Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast where we take a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time, chronologically. I am Will Westerkow and I'm joined today by John Isaacson. Hi, how's it going? Welcome, John. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you. John is a longtime zinester slash comic artist, and he's been doing a comic called Feedback, where he reviews shows, music shows, in comic form. How, how long have you been doing that? I think I did the first one in 2007. It was a band called The Advantage, who covers songs from Nintendo games. Uh-huh. I think they're from Sacramento, actually. I think it was the guitar player from a band called Hella, and they played at the bottom of the hill in San Francisco, and the entire comic <laughs> was about how my friend and I didn't have tickets, and um, it almost all took place outside of the venue, <laughs> and it was about looking in through the window, watching the different bands come on. Nice. Um, and so I think feedback's been about, it's about music and, and what bands play, and really because all my life... I've wanted to go to more concerts than I can actually physically or financially or geographically attend. And so I always want to know what the concerts were like that I couldn't go to. And so I really make feedback because I wish somebody else would make a comic like that for me to read. Even though you have a, uh, let's say, PhD in, what, 90s emo punk? (laughs) (laughs) It it seems like you are willing to uh, listen to most genres and you seem excited about most genres is that is that true i think jason newstead the bassist from metallica once said you know i mean metallica would give him shit for wearing like a bob marley shirt in their photo shoots but he said um if you cut yourself off from other types of music it's just like cutting off your lifeline you're limiting yourself you're ultimately asphyxiating artistically if you don't have an open mind i haven't yet done a concert review comic about going to see my colleagues acapella voice group perform but i have been to that performance it's no less legitimate than any of the other concerts i've been to and i've gone to see my kids perform at uh you know their school musical recitals and like why wouldn't that be a concert review comic now i mean I'm a dad and that that's my experience of music now. And, sure. You know, a lot of the times I wind up in the stereotypical boring, like kind of bar show where mm-hmm. you, there's a door prize and a cover and a sound guy, but like, that's not the only thing that music is or a concert has to be like, it can be something that happens in someone's backyard or, uh, in a church. Like I just saw Johnny X and the Grody's in a yoga studio. So I like trying to expand what limitations there are when possible. All right. We're going to be talking about December 1990. December 1990 would have been the end of my freshman year of high school. Okay. So uh, Gulf War invasion. Yeah. Getting into lots of trouble in high school. I was at a boarding school. Okay. So uh, being in high school, I would imagine you were listening to a lot of music. Were you hearing modern rock or were you just totally focused on the punk scene at that time? I was pretty focused on the punk scene, I think. I had had this moment yeah, between eighth and ninth grade, I was on a Boy Scout trip to Philmont, New Mexico, and a friend let me listen to his copy of Suffer by Bad Religion, mm-hmm. and it sort of changed my life. I had gotten into music through Def Leppard, Pour Some Sugar on Me, and In Excess. I was aware of what was going on, but I was, I was pretty down in the trenches, I think. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Although In Excess has showed up on uh, the modern rock charts, and Bad Religion, I think, is going to show up on the modern rock charts, uh, what, Five years from now? Yeah, they bro- they broke into the mainstream. That's right. So as we enter December, 
Jane's Addiction's Been Caught Stealing is still the number one song on the modern rock charts. It's going to be number one for the first two weeks of December. And then the Sisters of Mercy come along and they take the top spot for the rest of the month. Sisters of Mercy formed in 1980 in Leeds, England, and they were named after the Leonard Cohen song, Sisters of Mercy. The only consistent members of the band have been Andrew Eldritch and their drum machine, Dr. Avalanche. Eldritch is like a very, it sounds like a very British name. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that guy could be a warlock. Basically, I think that the name Eldritch, I mean, I think that there's a, a at least a homonym that comes up frequently in romantic literature about like Eldritch ways or Eldritch hmm. spells. So the, the first Sisters of Mercy album featured Wayne Hussey and Craig Adams. And when they were working on material for a follow-up album, Eldritch wanted the band to move in a new direction. And Hussey and Adams were not happy with that new direction. And so those guys ended up leaving the band and forming the Sisterhood, which irritated Eldritch because he thought the name was too similar to Sisters of Mercy. And I think everyone else is inclined to agree. So what he did was he took all of the songs that he had prepared for the new Sisters of Mercy album, and he instead recorded them on an album under the name The Sisterhood, which forced Hussey and Adams to come up with a new name, which ended up being The Mission or the Mission UK, as we're, we know it over here. Is that smart, or is that devious, or is that... Like, that is smart and devious. Yeah, yeah definitely. Just I mean, beat them to the punch. As long as you uh, record it first, then you've got dibs on the name. It's cunning, conniving. Those are some eldritch ways right there. <laughs> they are. Okay, so in 1990, Sisters of Mercy released their third studio album, which was called Vision Thing, which was a George H.W. Bush quote. And the album, in fact, was designed as an attack on Bush's policies. And this album notably features guitarist Tony James of Sig Sig Sputnik. So we're going to be hearing the first single from Vision Thing. Uh, It's called More. It's over eight minutes long. That sounds right up my alley. (laughs) Let's just listen to it. Okay. Ready? Here we go. That was quite an outro. Yeah, tell me about it. That was, what, two to three minutes of outro? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. There's a lot going on there. It's certainly a dynamic song. Yeah, I, I find the song fascinating. It starts out as like a pretty cool, moody goth thing. Right. And then when it gets to the chorus, yeah, it, it's like hard rock Whoa. guitars. And the chorus is not sung by the lead singer. It's sung by the backup singers. Who right. I, I don't even think are part of the band. They were probably just brought in for the song. Yeah. It feels like a different song at that point. It does have like the kind of sense of release that you want from a chorus, from you know a songwriting perspective. Yeah. Did this? It, oh, it, go ahead. It, it just it does it does feel a little bit schizophrenic. Like there's just this different. Uh, the instrumentation changes so much. Yeah. In the chorus. Would you describe this song as epic? 
Yes. Yes. And I'm just asking <laughs> I mean, because this song was co-written by someone who is well known for writing epic songs. Oh, wait. I was also thinking bombastic. Bomba- oh, bombastic is a great word. This so wait, is- it couldn't be Billy Corgan, though for some reason I think of that with no. like kind of bombastic, but it's the wrong era. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yes. Bad Out of Hell. I'd Do Anything for Love. Meatloaf. Meatloaf songwriting partner, Jim Steinman. That's correct. <laughs> Don't know the name. And he also wrote Hulk Hogan's theme song. It sounds like a professional songwriter is at work here. Yeah, professional songwriter who writes epically long, bombastic songs. I think this is really interesting because to me, when I listen to Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell album, it really sounds to me like Meatloaf and Jim Steinman uh, listened to a couple Bruce Springsteen tracks, and then they just said, like, let's turn that to 11. So this is this is cool seeing Jim Steinman's vision, but in in like a goth direction instead of a Springsteen direction. I would say this maybe qualifies as a new genre. Mm-hmm. We might term goth spull. <laughs> goth spull, I like it. Yes. I mean, the background, it, it has like a gospel feel in, mm-hmm. the, in the chorus. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the mission, part of the reason those other guys split off was because they wanted to be more goth and they thought that... Uh, True to their roots. Yeah, maybe maybe this was going in too much of a I don't know what was it uh, Richard Eldridge uh, a, meat, a meatloaf direction. Yeah. It was Andrew Eldridge. Andrew Eldridge. Yeah, his Richard was his father. <laughs> well, his voice sounds very baritone, or I don't know if it's baritone, but but bassy. Yeah, they, God, yeah. Leonard Cohen. Oh, Leonard I like Cohen-esque. it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds good. It sounds appropriate during the uh, the verses. Yeah. Well, that song was more. It lived up to its title. Here's how more that song was. That song stayed at number one for five weeks, all through December and then part of January in the next year. And it kept an incredibly huge band, maybe the biggest modern rock band of the era, U2, out of the top spot. That is amazing. Yeah. Now, to be fair, this is not a, a new U2 album or anything. It's, it's a U2 cover song that is part of a tribute album. But they only managed to make it to number two, and that's the next song we're going to be hearing. It is a cover of the Cole Porter song, Night and Day. This is U2 performing a Cole Porter song? That's correct. Very quick backstory. We've talked about U2 quite a few times on the show. We're going to talk about them more in the future. So for those of you who don't know, U2 formed in Dublin, Ireland in 1976. In 1988, the band put out the album Rattle and Hum. It was fine, but it... It did not live up to the expectation following their 1987 masterpiece, The Joshua Tree. And so the band was unsure how to proceed onto their next album. A couple of the band members wanted to go back to their classic sound and just say, that worked for us. Uh, We had a big hit. Let's do The Joshua Tree Part 2, more or less. But Bono and The Edge, they had become interested in European industrial and electronic dance music, and they started pushing the band more in that direction. So we would see the fruits of that eventually uh, in 1991 with their other massive album, Octungue Baby. But in 1990, we get a kind of mini preview of this new electronic direction with this U2 track we're about to hear, which was on a compilation album called Red, Hot, and Mm. Blue. And this was a compilation completely of Cole Porter covers, and it was an AIDS benefit album. Right, I remember that. Yeah, they they weren't benefiting AIDS. I don't. They were benefiting research. AIDS. Sure, sure. Yeah, 
Um, and it, the album featured artists such as Sinead O'Connor, Fine Young Cannibals, Deborah Harry, David Byrne, Erasure, Aztec Camera. I mean, this is a lot of modern rock bands. Yeah. And you two contributed a cover of the song Night and Day, which was popularized by Frank Sinatra, who had recorded it five times. By the way, super hard to find. This album not available on iTunes or Spotify. It was everywhere. Yeah. Big hit, number two hit. But um, if you want it, you got to go track down that tribute album. Yeah, it's got to be complicated as a compilation. Yep. Here we go. Night and day. That is a new direction for you too on that song. Oh yeah, I can I can see a lot of longtime fans being shocked and maybe dismayed, outraged. I, mean, I don't know. When I hear the beginning of that song, what comes in obviously really clearly are the drums, mm-hmm. and it reminds me of the Mission Impossible soundtrack, which oh, yeah? I think Adam Clayton uh, wrote, and I think and he's the bass player. For you too. And it, it just really reminds me of that kind of bombastic sound that you really hear in movies now. I mean, I just watched Into the Spider-Verse, the new uh-huh. animated Spider-Man. Yeah. And they have that really common sound effect you hear in film nowadays when an action sequence is beginning. That's kind of like this big, <laughs> these big um, bass crescendos. And that song had a couple of those in it. Yeah. On the keyboard side. But it, it does sound like later U2, and it also sounds like uh, some of the soundtrack work that the the rhythm section went on to do. This song, it's moody. You know, I think they captured what they were trying to capture, and it's definitely interesting as the the turning point between their previous work and and the next era of of U2. But gosh, I feel like I don't want to ever listen to the song again. I think of the Edge's guitar work when I think of what what do I like about U2? That's one of the things I like. And so uh, it's too bad yeah. uh, not to hear him in there. I can just picture them in the studio with Brian Eno and the Edge is sitting there like, when do I get to record my guitar part, guys? And they're all like, settle down the Edge. No, I think I think the Edge, he's he's kind of like a quiet, brooding, artistic type and, and looking to experiment and broaden his horizons and, and trying to move into keyboards. I think he I think he was trying to have some artistic uh expand his his directions there and trying to, you know, be open minded. Okay, uh, yeah, let's have a song with no guitar. I think of Guy uh from Fugazi and this lyric he had on a later album. It was like Red Medicine, I think, and he says, I am realizing that I hate the sound of guitars and he's somebody who's put out multiple albums as a guitarist singer, but yeah. realizing that, hey, you know, rock and roll isn't everything. That's not the be all end all of the musical world. You can have songs that are drums and piano or just piano and singing and it, it doesn't have to just be that. So and I think the edge and, and Guy are of a similar Calibers as musicians and as guitarists that they don't you know it's guitarists don't have to be it do you think the edge was inspired at all by eddie van halen making that jump from uh, guitar god to keyboard i've always thought of um john fahey 
And was it Robert Fripp who had this career as a guitarist and then also had this career as an experimental electronic musician? I think Jim O'Rourke is in that category too. Yeah, I think there's there's more than a few of um, guitarists who, who felt like they've maybe done all they can do on the guitar and are looking to do something on a different instrument. Sure. We're going to move on to the next song. The next band we're going to hear is called The Connells. The Connells formed in North Carolina in 1984 by two brothers, Mike and David Connell. And the band originally drew comparisons to R.E.M., it's kind of uh, jangly southern alternative rock, although they often have some Celtic influences. And in 1990, the Connells are putting out their fourth studio album called One Simple World. We're going to be hearing a song called Stone Cold Yesterday, which reached number three on the modern rock charts. Do you know the Connells? I just am imagining, you know, Chris Connolly's children. But I'm, I'm picturing Jerry O'Connell from... Uh, <laughs> was sliders from what <laughs> sliders sliders and um uh what else was he in uh stand by me oh, as, okay. as a little yeah um pudgy kid oh right and um my secret identity sounds very irish yeah uh here we go stone cold yesterday So that was a killer song. When a song starts out and you, from the first couple notes, you already know what to anticipate and what's coming next. Mm -hmm. I think that's a sign of really good songwriting. I mean, it's simple and it's predictable and it draws the listener in. Like someone who's never heard that song before, like I've never heard that song before, and I already know within the first bar, like how the next three bars are going to go. And you like that about the song? I like music that does that because it's a feature of, of folk music that draws the listener in and allow, it allows the listener to participate in the music. Interesting. In, in that way, because the audience is taking part. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually kind of sing along or bob your head along or mouth the words even though you've never heard it before. There's something inclusive about that. The guitar kind of wanders around a bit more than it needs to, but it feels like all the instruments are in the right place and and a listener knows what to expect. So it has this kind of like pop drive that really pulls you in. And um, yeah, I really like that kind of song. I like the, the general sound of the song, I think. There were some harmonies I liked. I didn't love the mix. I thought sometimes the guitars were competing and like really up front and center when mm-hmm. they maybe needed to be back a little more. Yeah, they're busy. Yeah, they were a little busy. Bam, bam, bam. Um, and I, I, I could be wrong. I feel like it took them over a minute and a half to get to the chorus, and then they only did the chorus twice. So you're right. Like by the time the, the chorus came around the second time, I was totally ready to sing along and be part of that song. I feel like they could have fit three choruses in and still made the song like 30 seconds shorter than it was. Yeah. I, that's one of those things where it's like, you have to kill your darlings, you know, like you've got to, 
trim it back. Like there's an amazing song in there. And, and it's amazing because of the fact that it's simple and easy to follow. And it could be even better if it were even simpler. I don't always agree with that sentiment, but I I feel like I do agree in this case that I think they could have simplified a few things and it would have made it a stronger song. Yeah. But this remains their biggest hit or one of their biggest hits because their greatest hits CD or album is called Stone Cold Yesterdays. It's just that song. Greatest hits. uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's 12 different versions. Uh, They got the simple version, the uh, bombastic Jim Steinman version. You got the, the, Brian, the version. Brian Eno, yeah, yeah, electronic version. So the Connells, they did end up achieving some success in Europe in 1993 with their song 7475. Is that how you pronounce Is that? Is that about the years? Yeah, it's, 1974? It's, like, it's like the year 74 dash the year 75. How would you pronounce that? 74 to 75. It's like a it's like a academic year. Yeah, but that- The year I graduated high school. That was the year <laughs> before not, I was born. I was going to say, that's not true. <laughs> um, but that song and that success actually led them to open some shows for Def Leppard in wow. Europe. So I can see that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's not like platinum album mega sales, but that's, that's something serious. to be able to say you open for Def Leppard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets for... Although I'm, I'd be willing to bet <laughs> they didn't get a great response from some of those crowds. Yeah. yeah, that would that would have been a tough reception for them. You know, when uh, the Rolling Stones were on tour with Guns N' Roses and Living Color. Like, mm-hmm. I remember being in middle school and hearing from a fellow student who'd gone to see them that the audience was not into Living Color. That's insane. You know, I mean, they're a great band. I mean, cult of personality and the guitar player is really singular in his playing. But of course, I mean, what do you expect from a bunch of crusty old Stones fans? You know, sure. they would like have no idea that they were watching an amazing band. Yeah. Uh, I could be misremembering this one, but I think Def Leppard brought Jim Steinman in to co-write songs on an album. Totally makes sense. It did not end up working out as far as I remember. And so we never heard the fruit of those labors. <laughs> Probably burned in a studio fire. Sure. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm i sad. I, I wish we would have got some some Def Leppard, Steinman, and maybe the Connells could have jumped in there just for fun. I don't know. I feel, I feel like Def Leppard is just too close to what Steinman, Steinman. Steinman was already doing. I mean, Def Leppard kind of already has that bombastic sound. But they, so it's they weren't. Of, it's almost like too close. They weren't know? eight minutes long, though. That's that's what he would have added. He's like, this sounds good, but double it. All wrong. Yeah, I guess they're, I mean, they're an arena rock band, but they're not a rock opera. All right. So enough of the Connells. We're actually going to look at the very bottom of the charts for our final band today. I guess not technically the bottom, but the lowest charting position that peaked in December. So we're going to be looking at a number 27 hit. It's where all the good stuff sinks down to that level. That's right. And this is a band called the Inspiral Carpets. Oh, yeah. The Inspiral Carpets were formed in Oldham, England in 1983. And they're generally associated with the Manchester scene and acts like the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses. And or we haven't been hearing too many Manchester or Acid House bands on This Is Modern Rock, but they have been popping up. Uh, mostly on the lower reaches of the charts this year. What's the name of this this genre? Is it from Manchester? Yeah, it's, it's generally uh, referred to as Madchester. Although I I feel silly saying that. No, yeah, that can't that can't be it. 
<laughs> is Inspiral a word? I was wondering what type of carpet an Inspiral carpet is. And is it a carpet that inspires you? Is it a type of pattern on a carpet? Is it a type of weave in a carpet from a specific region of the world? Well, I can tell you what uh, Wiktionary says. It's an adjective from astronomy, and it describes the path of a pair of binary stars that are losing energy and spiraling in towards each other. Wow. Yeah, that's cosmic. That is definitely the definition they were using. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that create when two, two stars ca- collide? A supernova? What, what happens when two carpets collide? <laughs> Carpeteria. This podcast brought to you by Carpeteria. <laughs> give us money. But in 1989, with the first half of their album written, two members of Inspiral Carpets, including their lead singer, left the band to form the Rain Kings. So the remaining band, uh, rather than just fall apart, they decided to keep going. And they grabbed some new members, they signed to Mute Records, and they released their debut album, Life, In the U.S., the album was modified slightly, dropping the track Beside Me and adding a B-side to a previous non-album single. That song was called Commercial Rain, and it became a minor hit in the U.S. Now, in the U.K., the next single, This Is How It Feels, became a top 20 hit and propelled the album Life to number two on the U.K. album charts. So, I don't know, I think it's interesting to think about, like, if their lead singer had not left the band would they have been as successful? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, maybe the lead singer was not the main songwriting force in this band. Sure. Also of note, though, during this time period, through 1991, Noel Gallagher of Oasis was working as a roadie for Inspiral Carpets. And he even auditioned to be their new lead singer, but did not get the job, either because he couldn't sing (laughs) or because he thought the lyrics were shite and refused to sing them. One of those two. How can you try out for a band if you refuse to sing the lyrics? It <laughs> seems like. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. All right. The other weird thing about commercial rain is when I look it up, it's spelled two different ways and it never seems to be consistent. Yeah. I was just wondering about that myself. Like, is this the rule of commercials or like has rain somehow been co-opted mm-hmm. by advertisers? Yeah. So bought the weather. So Discogs and Wikipedia list it as commercial rain, R-A-I-N. But if you look up lyrics or if you get it on iTunes, it seems to be R-E-I-G-N. Yeah, I think I would not trust the lyrics websites. Those seem to frequently be wrong. Sure, but what about iTunes, iTunes, just on principle, no, just (laughs) shouldn't trust So you think it's it's raining commercials? Like it's... Commercials yeah, are or, falling or, from well, the sky. I think it's that the the rain has been commercialized. Like our lives oh. have become so commodified, mm-hmm. and, and corporations have sort of bought the rights to so many things that they even you know you you have to pay someone for it to rain. <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. Right, maybe we'll listen to the song and it will become obvious. Sure, let's let's give it a shot. Here's commercial rain or commercial rain by the Inspiral Carpets.
you really hear the keyboards quite loudly. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is what that sound, song sounded like to me. Uh, the first minute, it sounded like one member of the band was not playing the same thing the rest of the band was playing. At the end of the song, it sounded like they just kind of, like some band members gave up partway through and they just started walking off one at a time uh, until it was just the guitar player left. And then the middle of the song sounded like uh, somebody's funky grandma doing a couple organ solos. (laughs) I think to me, the entire song sounded like funky grandma organ solos. It's a a lot of of funky grandma organ solos, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was was mostly uh, keyboard. I mean, the drums sound very heavy and electronic in the beginning, but it, it sounds pretty formulaic. Yeah, it kind of sounded to me like a jam session yeah. that they did, and they said, oh, this is kind of catchy, like, let's slap it on tape and make it a B-side, and then somehow that B-side became a, a minor hit for them. Yeah, it's it's definitely the the ah-ahs, like there's, I can still hear it in my head, so it has that catchy side mm-hmm. to it, but it's sort of, it's it's catchy by way of redundancy sure. <laughs> and kind of hypnosis and repetition one of the first things that struck me, though, when the when the bass comes in, it immediately caught my attention because yeah. it sounds to me like um, Possum Kingdom by the Toadies, which is a little bit after this. You know what? Let's just listen to it. Here is a slightly modified clip of Possum Kingdom followed by a slightly modified clip of Commercial Rain. I have to wonder, like, did they hear the song? Were they commercial rain fans and thought, like, we can do we can do better than that? Well, I don't know the toadies, but I, that bass line did stand out to me. I mean, that's a catchy bass line. Like, it, it, it reels you into that song. It's groovy. Mm-hmm. But in a kind of what James Hetfield would say, once again, to <laughs> quote Metallica, in a sort of stock way. Like, um, yeah. you know, you can find there's a lot of bass lines like that. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, like I can picture this being a song that some people would uh, want to dance to when they are high on ecstasy. Right. No, it's definitely a song you can hit the dance floor on. And I think, you know, on hearing it, it is R-E-I-G-N. This is the the ruling reign because somebody wants their doll, somebody wants their teddy bear, so... Maybe these. Uh, this is the rule of the commercial area era when okay. um, there's buying and purchasing things. You've decided it's R E I G N, and that's how I feel on display of this evidence. Okay. <laughs> well, that's it. That's uh, our four songs we're gonna hear. All right. Well, those are four songs I've never heard before, so that was very educational and informative. I feel like I've never heard them before, and I did research for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I am definitely a fan of, was it the Collins? Connells. The Connells. Mm-hmm. I think that was the best song. Okay. Yeah. What, do, think, you, what do you think was the best song uh, of these four, if you, you know, had to choose one? The one that I enjoyed the most, honestly, was uh, the eight-minute Sisters of Mercy song. <laughs> yeah. The gospel goth. The gospel. Yeah. Yes. Something about that guy's voice and just like the beginning and those synthy strings, it, it sounded cool to me. Yeah, there's it. the most going on in that song. I mean, it's probably like the most interesting of the of the four. Yeah, but these were very different songs and very different styles. 
John, is there is there anything you're up to? Anything? Um, do you have a web presence that you would like me to direct listeners to if they want to see some of your work? I have a blog, uh, feedbackcomics.blogspot.com, and I have the concert review comics on there. Cool. And if they want to hear um, Galaxy Quest, what was your brand name? <laughs> oh, Galaxy Drive. <laughs> Galaxy Drive. Uh, I don't think that is online. There is an emo band is it second wave emo or third wave emo? I'm not sure. It's kind of in between. But um, I was in a band called Three Letter Engagement. There are some some demos or things that people have posted online. Okay. But that is that is quite old. <laughs> what what wave of emo are we on right now? It's way out there. I don't know. I I know it's it must be like four or five or six at least. Okay. So if I started yeah. an emo band right now, I would be you'd be like, in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw that some um, club here in Portland has an emo night, but huh. emo night emo now is like black hair and eyeliner, mm. and I was kind of going that way a little bit. There were these we called them Romulans. People who wore high water pants from San Diego, like wallet chains, like Justin Pearson. But I think that's not a thing anymore. So different. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, John, thanks for joining me. Yeah. If anyone wants to get in touch with me or provide some feedback or whatever, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Peace out. <laughs>